0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Korean Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Leslie Hickman, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Olga Fedorenko about her new book, Flower of Capitalism, South Korean Advertising at a Crossroads. Flower of Capitalism was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2022 It explores how local sensibilities, values, and politics shaped South Korean advertising as a media form and social institution in the first decade of the 21st century. Dr. Fedorenko is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Seoul National University. She received her Master's and PhD from the East Asian Studies Department at the University of Toronto and her Bachelor's in Korean Studies from the Institute of Asian and African Countries at Lomonosov Moscow State University. She has published a number of articles on advertising, popular culture, and the sharing economy in South Korea. Dr. Federenko, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I guess your
2: introduction was pretty comprehensive. Uh, I'm a scholar of Korean studies. I'm teaching Korean culture, society, and media-related stuff at the anthropology department of Seoul National University. So advertising was my kind of first big research interest and kind of fits into larger research like I'm doing on media in South Korea.
1: All right, so how did, my first question, how did you begin to research Korean advertising and ultimately come to write this book?
2: Well, I guess, as with many academic stories, it's like a story of serendipity and chance. So a long time ago, when I was in graduate school in a May course, I was taking a course on uh, graduate seminar on capitalist state anastasia, and I kinda wasn't committed to any particular topic at that point. And I just happened to be reading a really cool novel where the main protagonist was a copywriter. So the novel was by Russian writer Victor Pelevin. The novel is called Generation P. It's actually a pretty cool novel. I think it's translated into English. So just kind of very, well, a little bit opportunistically, I thought, okay, that sounds cool. Why not look into advertising? And I looked into South Korean advertising and was kind of blown away because it was not at all what... I expected. And at that point, I was most interested, I was most surprised by the extent of censorship that was subjected to. So that was, I guess, mid 2000s. And at that time, Every single commercial that was shown on TV had to go through some pre-clearance procedure, like every single commercial. So I was kind of fascinated by the amount of effort that went into this. And also I was like really, really curious, how do you draw the line? Like when advertising is ethical, when is it unethical? So originally I thought I'll go into those topics and from there the project kind of exploded into something much bigger
1: wow okay thank you i never considered advertising um as a way of like something to study in academia but yeah uh, i really enjoyed the book and um i yeah the next question i have is could you explain the meaning of the book's title which is flower of capitalism and why you chose that phrase for the title
2: well flower of capitalism So flower of capitalism is kind of the most neutral, cliched, banal, invisible metaphor for advertising in South Korea. Whenever someone writes something about advertising, very often it would start advertising is called the flower of capitalism. And then they go into like whatever they are going to say. And it could be critical, it could be positive, but it's just like very, very, very neutral term. So when I noticed it first, I was struck like how unusual this metaphor is. And because of that, I said, okay, like if this is how it's talked about in Korea, perhaps I should try to investigate what exactly it means for uh, people who use that metaphor. Um, Yeah, so why I chose this metaphor as a title for the book, I think it's kind of unusual, memorable, and distinct. And actually I had some concerns about that because some people I talked about this didn't particularly like it because in English it kind of sounds a little bit cheesy. On the other hand, it totally kind of connects to this Korean idea of advertising. And that's what I was trying to work with. So Basically, I'm hoping that in the title, the metaphor captures this key tension, which I'm trying to explore in the book, advertising as a capitalist institution on the one hand, and on the other hand, that's something that could be inspiring, mesmerizingly beautiful, and like how those things work together.
1: Thank you. My next question is about the history of advertising, which you covered in chapter one. So that chapter also cites key initiatives and events that led to dramatic shifts in the advertising industry in South Korea. And one of them included the White Pages incident, which came up uh, in the book quite often. Could you walk us through some of those events?
2: Yeah, I guess history of Korean advertising, it's like, I guess with any history, the question is where to begin. And many Korean histories would start the story of Korean advertising in 1886, and that's the year when the first known modern advertising was published in Korea. So 1886, and the advertising was in like a government newspaper, and it was by some German trading company, and it looks very simple. So it's like I think 24 lines of text, and it lists what the company is selling, what companies buying and yeah it's kind of curious i guess historical document at this point because they are buying things like i don't know animal skins human hair horse and pig tails so kind of things like that and they are selling best and fabrics dyes combs, needles or cotton jeans i thought that was quite interesting so kind of like coincides with coming like introduction of capitalist modernity in korea Uh, So that's like the official beginnings of Korean advertising. And I do mention this in the book, but actually the way I'm telling the story, I'm kind of starting with, um, I guess, roughly 1945, 1945, like South Korean advertising. Um, And this is not to say that during colonial period, advertising was not important. It was because as Korea was moving into Japanese sphere of influence, Japanese advertising agency Dentsu set up its shop in Korea, and many Japanese companies were advertising their goods in Korea as well. So actually, advertising was quite robust during colonial period. But as we are moving towards the Pacific War, that whole industry basically shrinks and practically disappears because all resources are redirected toward war effort. So pretty much no advertising in Korea, like in from late 30s into early 40s. So when advertising begins in South Korea again, it kind of starts not quite from scratch, because some people who did it during colonial period are still around. But there is very little need to advertise because in the 40s, 50s, South Korea is a very poor place. Not that many commodities are available. Of course, people don't have that much money anyway. And basically whatever is available, it just sells right away. You don't really need to advertise anything. So as South Korean economy begins to pick up, like in the 60s, but like advertising, basically it's seller's market until the 70s. Pretty much anything that is produced is sold. And if something needs to be advertised, that's actually a little bit suspicious. Like, what's wrong with this? Why is not selling? The only exception would be commodities which are new and which people don't really know what to do with. And some education is required. Like one really interesting um, example I found, advertising for toothpaste because toothpaste as a product has to be introduced because until then, uh, apparently most Koreans would brush their teeth by rubbing salt into their teeth and toothpaste as a product was a novelty. So advertising kind of introduced people like, okay, this is what it is, this is what you do with that. But generally, again, like up to mid 70s, advertising is not important as this marketing tool at all because it is a seller's market. Okay, and it does, advertising does become a significant industry during military dictator Park Chung-hee, like in um, like 60s, 70s. And at the time, Korean eco- economy is industrialized. It's like uh, truly picks up. Uh, so perhaps like kind of... Um, Watershed moment is 1968 when Coca-Cola enters South Korean market and does real advertising campaign. So no one really saw modern advertising in Korea up to that point. And here Coca-Cola comes and does like television advertising. And that was a very interesting moment for Korean people who were working in the advertising industry because they kind of realized like, okay, this is how it could be done. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess advertising is developing in the 70s, but at the same time, promoting consumption in Korea is kind of a difficult and controversial endeavor because many government programs promote Thrift and frugality and kind of saving rather than immediately consuming. So basically the government is trying to direct people resources into savings so that could be invested into further um, industrial development. So people so advertising kind of walking this fine line about promoting consumption but not really promoting it too aggressively. Okay, so this is kind of like, yeah. I guess I'm trying to get to that White Pages incident, but like a little bit of prehistory there. Um, Right. Yeah, in a way, in some ways, it was like the hardest chapter to write because I kind of wanted to tell all those fascinating stories because so many things were happening in Korea at the time. And actually, there is almost nothing written about that in English. So, yeah. Uh, Anyway, so kind of getting to that um, Donga White Pages incident, which I do... Uh, frame as one of the key moments in the history of Korean advertising. So it is happening. It starts in, I guess, the incident itself happens over Christmas, New Year's of 1974, 1975. Um, the context for it is laid out in uh, 19 early 1970s. So basically... Military dictator Park Chun-hee is in power. He's been in power for over a decade. His popular support is not quite as strong, and he introduces various measures to control dissent and particularly suppress critical press and freedom of expression. And at the time, journalists are a very critical group, and some of them are trying to protest in any way they could. And in October 1974, about 200 journalists of national daily Tonga Bo sign a declaration demanding freedom of press and condemning censorship. So in response to that declaration authorities are trying to get the newspaper to fire those journalists but they go about it in a roundabout way they put pressure on advertisers of the newspaper to withdraw their advertising so that newspaper loses its revenues and in response Does something about it. So that's what's happening. And the timing is late December, specifically, like it starts happening around Christmas. And at the time, Christmas in Korea is the peak advertising season because companies not really thinking of advertising as marketing, but kind of, you know, I guess public relations congratulating their customers on Christmas. So that's kind of the dynamic there. And, um, Yeah, just before Christmas, many advertisers of the newspaper get a call from government office, from KCIA, saying then, well, it's better if you don't advertise in the newspaper. And many advertisers, well, have to kind of accept that. So basically, they withdraw their ads. And at first, the newspaper is trying to deal with that by publishing internal advertising, like Donat Company also owned movie theaters, some magazines. So they would put like some advertising for those magazines, even though they were already sold out just to kind of fill the space. But at some point they decided that, well, this is not really working and where advertising was supposed to go, they just leave blank spaces. So it's like a newspaper page and you have like about half of a page or quarter of a page where you have like this blank little squares, which tells you what's going on without telling you anything. So it's like visually striking and also like kind of very public condemnation of censorship in a way. So this is noticed by general public and many people respond with this movement to, say, to save the newspaper. So citizens start sending their own advertisements, like in Korean they were called 경력 광고, like encouragement ads. Uh, And some of them would be just good wishes, some of them would be some kind of vague messages like about support for democracy. And they try to basically support the newspapers through that citizens' advertising. And statistics I quote in the book that, so that kind of starting in late December, particularly in January, and goes up to May. So until May, over 10,000 of such citizen ads were published. So... Quite a mass of support there. At the same time, it was not enough to keep the newspaper afloat. And in the end, they basically caved in and fired the journalists. But the whole episode is very much known in Korea. And usually it is narrated as a chapter in struggle for freedom of press and of course it is but the way i'm retelling the story it's also about advertising about the role of advertising as this medium that could and should support free press so that idea kind of stays with us well with us in korea from that episode and like that episode continues to be referenced in um controversies that arise
1: around advertising,
2: like, yeah. Um, Thank you. Okay,
1: so um, if I can move on to the next question. Um, So in chapter two, you describe advertising as an embedded social phenomenon and advertisers as cultural producers and public intellectuals, rather than just as, um, I quote, unequivocal champions of capital which you then illustrate through comparisons between the American show Mad Men, which unfortunately I haven't actually watched, um, but I do know of it. And then also the Korean show Advertising Genius Yutaebaek. So could you explain how these shows depict advertising as embedded social phenomenon? Yeah, so in a way, like
2: that chapter two is probably my favorite chapter in the book because it was based on my... Um, field work at an advertising agency where I was an intern for two months. And that was well a lot of fun, a little bit stressful. But also I got to know all kinds of interesting people who work in advertising and kind of got to see their perspective. But I guess before I get to, you know, the perspective, like two television shows. So Mad Men were running from 2007 to 2015. So right at the time when I was doing my field work. So originally I was not particularly interested in watching that, but pretty much all advertising people in Korea I was talking to were telling me, you should be watching this. If you're interested in advertising, that's a show. So it was quite influential. Well, I don't know about influential, but like drew much interest here. Uh, And I started to watching it and I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting, but not at all what I'm seeing at an advertising agency in Korea. So, So Mad Men, you have this... 1960s New York, Madison Avenue, very glamorous advertising creatives who are, well, in sleek offices doing this very cool job, spend their time doing cool things. So kind of like this world of glamour. And that's kind of how it presented. And advertising is presented as this, again, glamorous, creative profession for very cool people, like to simplify it very much. Um and the korean show i'm comparing it with it was not nearly as popular but you know it major it showed on i think kbc2 like one of the um, noticeable channels and the show was called advertising genius itebek it was only one season and what was interesting about it it was based on a story of a real advertising man in korea like his name is ej and he was quite hot again at the time when i was doing my field work the show came up several years later so in that south korean tv series advertising appears as something very very different from madman advertising so in south korean tv series you have this tiny advertising agency, which is trying to break through in this world dominated by big corporations, big agencies, and they're trying to break through, but also they are not willing to compromise on their ethical principles. And usually their efforts are into doing advertising for small businesses, for nonprofits. So kind of like small projects, which are definitely not about generating giant profits or making like some national super successful brands, but kind of like helping the underdog in some ways. So that's like one part of that story. And the other part of the story is like those protagonists of the show, they're actively fighting with their corporate clients. (laughs) They're exposing their wrongdoings when they can. So kind of like advertising men as this, fighters against corporate injustice. So this idea of advertising is somehow like almost activist profession. That's what kind of struck me about that show. And I mentioned it's based on the life of a real person. And I mean, he was quite controversial, but not quite as, you know, as far as I know, he wasn't really openly fighting with corporate clients, but he did make his name by making advertising for, uh, nonprofits for kind of government agencies like advertisements, which were trying to promote some kind of social values and not particularly interested in commodities. And in his interviews, he actually talks a lot about how he does not want to promote consumerism because it could make poor people feel inferior. So things like that coming from an admin are quite striking.
1: Thank you. I'll have to try to look for that show. Um, *The I don't know if it's available anywhere.
2: It probably is. I mean, it's quite sweet. Again, kind of standard setup for two men, for women, like the triangle of relationship, but somehow everything is mediated through advertising.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. That works for a lot of Korean dramas, so I see. Um, My next question is... um, Though Koreans used to hold advertising in low esteem, by the early 2000s, so many individuals aspired to the field that companies received sometimes hundreds of applicants, as you say in your book, um, for each open position. So how did this such a drastic change come about?
2: So that's like another fascinating story about Korean advertising, because it kind of starts from very unprestigious profession to becoming like one of the most desired among young people so originally like advertising was associated with kind of peddlers you know kind of small merchants and that was not attractive to most people and that changes for various reasons but like to kind of focus on main ones Uh, Around 1980s, by mid-90s, there is a lot of advertising that's produced in Korea and people who are in advertising industries, they're kind of trying to make advertising that is aesthetically beautiful. And in Korea i guess i didn't really talk about that when i was talking about history but like around 1980s there is this appreciation for humanist aesthetic and advertising for, in advertising for advertising campaigns which are very sentimental which show life of ordinary people and kind of warm sweet colors and those campaigns become super popular so many of those campaigns would be kind of public relations advertising for corporations, like kind of image advertising. Um, but many Korean people appreciate those kind of campaigns as basically part of popular culture. So what I'm saying is like around 19, uh, early 1990s, there are many advertising campaigns which are Popular, And media begin to talk about them as, you know, good campaigns which promote good values. So that kind of begins to shift um, opinions about advertising. And then media begin to interview people who make those ads. And those ad men, and at the time all of them are men, so... They are quite eloquent. They talk up the advertising profession. They talk about creativity. They present themselves as like visionaries who are basically doing this creative thing in Korean society, which is all too conformist for their tastes. So, kind of like this legend of creative is being, well, created in Korea. So, of course, that legend of the creative circulates outside of Korea quite widely and those Korean ad men are quite aware of it. So they are reproducing it for Korean public. So it's like one thing um, that's happening also in the nineties, generally, there is much easier access to foreign advertising in Korea. So like winners of Con Lions Awards will be screened in movie theater, and people could go watch it if they're curious. So again, people are kind of exposed to more well good quality advertising, well-produced advertising. And basically it becomes interesting for people who are interested in creativity and at the time of course creativity itself has become a buzzword because like up to that point korean economy was growing through this industrial outputs through exports but around 90s it kind of becomes clear that okay that's all great but you know labor becoming expensive exporting uh, cultural products appears like as another possible strategy and to do that you kind of need this creative content so like this kind of conversation that we need creativity we need creative industries it also becomes a part of this mainstream discourse and who knows about creativity better than advertising people so they kind of latch into that and try to you know again create this hype around the profession so like when I was doing my fieldwork, one thing that was interesting to me that many people I interviewed, so like I was doing interviews, I guess, in t- 2009, 2010. So people, mid-career people I was interviewing, so they would have entered the profession, I guess, like around 1990s. So many of them would be, Artistic people who tried to make a career in some like purely artistic pursuit and realized, okay, I cannot make a living as an orchestra conductor. I cannot make a living as a documentary film director. I cannot make a living as a poet. So what could I do? And advertising seemed like an acceptable compromise to many of those people, because on the one hand, it is a well-paying job. On the other hand, it does have, at least in theory, this creative aspect where a person could do something interesting with it. And especially to outsiders, people who don't quite know how the industry works, it seems like that there is a lot of room for this creative self-expression. So that was also attractive to many younger Koreans who kind of were you know, not particularly eager to enter South Korean corporate world because it has, like, this reputation for strict hierarchies, for, you know, like, relationship kind of subordination of, um, like, master servant when master kind of could basically tell the person in subordinate position to do whatever and it basically takes many years of service to kind of move up through the ranks and it seems like an advertising if you're brilliant if you're creative you could just come up with one brilliant idea and well the world is yours so that kind of many factors came together to make it suddenly hot and attractive um yeah, so basically many things worked for advertising that way. At the same time, I should say that kind of worked that way for humanities, social sciences people, because like for people like economics, engineering, it's still not too serious a profession. And yeah, I don't think people in those fields would be interested in advertising, at least in those
1: days. Uh, so people with like social science backgrounds would be more interested. Is that what you're saying? Well, humanities and social sciences, and
2: generally in advertising, they are interested often in hiring people who are trained in such disciplines, because again, the idea is if you read widely, you have a lot of you know resources to pull on. You could come up with creative ideas influenced by all this novels, books you read, and that could make better advertising. So in that regard, humanities people do have a bit of an advantage.
1: I see, okay. Um, so I'll skip down to a few questions down because you mentioned um, the humanitarian themed commercials and I remember you wrote in the book um, how you and your friends back home thought they were kind of cheesy um, but when you asked Korean friends about it, they were like, oh, they like their hearts were touched by them and so um, I also thought that was really interesting that that difference, um, you spoke a little bit about why that might be the case, but is there a particular reason why those sorts of commercials, even though they kind of don't really speak full, full truth about what's going on, they cover up kind of that they are capitalist in the way that they're approaching this, um, but like, why are they so popular in, in South Korea?
2: I mean, that was like one of the puzzles of my fieldwork. So when I started this research, I was in a little bit of disbelief because those ads, I don't
1: know if you've seen any of them. Um, I watched the the YouTube links that you provided.
2: Okay, I'm glad Mm -hmm. because like yeah, I did create that YouTube channel with all the commercials I mentioned in the book and it's kind of listed at the back of that appendix, but I don't know if anyone has noticed that because, yeah, it's kind of fun to look at those things. Anyway, so that kind of whole popularity. So first of all, like that whole genre of humanist advertising was kind of surprising to me and its popularity was kind of secondary surprise. So as I described that the genre itself, like those campaigns are super sweet, super sentimental. They say very little about commodities, if anything at all. So usually it would be the logo of the sponsor at the end. And if you don't know what it is about, like you will never guess because it's just like some sweet message about like every day of common people, maybe showing some, I don't know, traditional values, maybe showing uh, family life. So stories like that. And okay. So advertising could use various strategies and it's not exactly unprecedented to do this kind of sentimental appeal, even outside of Korea. So that is interesting that it's so popular, but it's not kind of super surprising. What is surprising is like how much this genre is loved in Korea. And in a way, I kind of it came to my attention like early in my field work, I came across this little book published by Korea Advertising Association. So they solicited letters from people asking them about advertising they like. And they publish the best letters in this collection of, I think, over 100 letters. And reading that was quite fascinating to me because most of those letters were talking about like those kind of sweet moving campaigns and how people watch advertising and that moves their emotion, how wonderful it is that advertising tells such stories. So what emerges there that... In a way like that advertisement advertising is consumed as if it was just another popular cultural genre so the fact that advertising it's like really is secondary for enjoying that kind of whole message so people kind of have well no problem bracketing it out and when i said that i kind of realized that Framing it as a problem in a way I'm bringing my perspective on that. And like, as you mentioned, like when I was watching those ads, my reaction was like, well, but like, they're trying to manipulate your feelings. Don't you see that? So to me, it was like a little bit like trying to do, get like, no, I won't be moved by the sentimental thing. I know you're trying to sell me things that doesn't work that way. And again, that's just like, I came to realize that that's basically my, approach to advertising that i'm thinking of it as marketing communication and i think many people would do the same way and kind of question a little bit like okay the message is sweet what are you trying to sell and in korea like the message is sweet let's enjoy it and i don't care if you're trying to sell (laughs) so kind of that so in a way like i am uh using this phenomenon of humanist advertising and also like this practices of appreciating them as a way to kind of talk about advertising as a social institution in Korea. Advertising is a media genre, which is similar to advertising everywhere else, but at the same time is a little bit different. And it is a little bit different in a way that I think it's kind of closer to popular culture. And understood as closer to popular culture. And in that way, it's kind of easier to enjoy it as popular culture and not feel conflicted about that.
1: It's definitely... No, I, I appreciate your answer. Um, and I also, uh, I lived in Korea for a few years, and it I felt differently towards advertising there than I felt at home, where I also had the lens of like, Oh, when I watch advertising at home, I know they're trying to tell me something, so I I don't want to give in. But in Korea, I think through speaking with Korean people or studying, I came to really enjoy advertising. So I thought that was also interesting to reflect on as well. It's like, oh, is there something different here or is it just the the atmosphere? I don't know. Um, I think something
2: similar is also happening with advertising, which features like K-pop artists, Because, you know, you have a lot of those screen celebrities doing a lot of advertising and many of them appear indoors way more than one commercial. And again, people from outside of Korea often kind of get puzzled about that because, you know, for Western artists like to do advertising is like, okay, it's great. But if they do too many people think, oh, they're kind of selling out in Korea. It's not like that at all. And generally people kind of celebrate if a particular celebrity has many commercials and fans in particular would praise that and appreciate an opportunity like okay so and so in such a commercial i can see them a lot this day isn't that wonderful so kind of like an opportunity to see the favorite celebrities through advertising
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. All right. So if I, um, so the next question though individuals began to see advertising as a sustainable way to fulfill their desire for creativity and make a social impact, you also wrote that their ambitions had to recede, giving way to banal advertising that neither dazzled with creativity nor stirred effects, nor giving way, wait, sorry, nor provoked identification. Advertising that amazes the imagination and facilitates social justice is a fantasy from TV melodramas. I liked the way you worded that, so I kept it in. Um, but what abs- obstacles do advertisers face in creating the ads that they wish to make? Well,
2: obstacles are many. <laughs> And okay, so first, maybe I just want to draw a distinction between advertisers and advertising agencies. So I know, like in English, somehow it gets confused a lot in Korean. It's like super clear. One is 광고주, like the owner of advertising, the advertiser, and In or Daengsa, like kind of advertising agency or advertising people who make advertising. And one of the points I'm trying to tease out in that. Chapter two is how interests and desires of people who make advertising do not necessarily coincide with interests and priorities of people who basically pay for advertising to be made. So companies who order advertising, presumably they want their product sold. And people who make advertising, like, okay, they're making advertising, which is marketing communication, but they also have all these other agendas. They have also these ideas about what advertising should be. So that's what kind of what we were talking about a moment ago. But this desires to create humanist advertising or kind of moving advertising, advertising with social values, it often gets frustrated because of practicalities of advertising work. So kind of like at two levels. Uh, On the one hand, you have like very kind of banal considerations, like tight deadlines. Like, you know, probably, I don't know, people who listen to this podcast, maybe some would be students and got an idea when you want to write the most brilliant paper, but it's due tomorrow. So you kind of have to make compromises. So advertising people kind of often have to work with very, very tight deadlines and they don't really have control of like let's say celebrity schedules when those are involved often advertisers would set kind of specific conditions which need to be fulfilled which would limit that play for creativity very considerably so it's kind of like everyday level Um, more general level is like this power dynamic between advertising agencies and advertisers, like companies that order advertisers. So basically advertisers have all the power. The other ones who are paying, the other ones who are vetoing which advertising they want to accept, which they don't want to accept. And advertising people would like to be treated also as professionals and listened to to kind of give a lot of input to those campaigns. And sometimes it works that way but often it doesn't. And advertisers would kind of basically dictate their will. And sometimes they do have good creative ideas. And sometimes it's just something they just want to say like, okay, our competitor has an ad with a top female celebrity. Let's do something similar, but with a different celebrity. So kind of like I like safe solutions which would not necessarily appeal to advertising people themselves yeah so basically practicalities of life get in the way of best intentions
1: chapter three covers advertising censorship in the chapter you wrote that censors were called to represent public interest yet often ended up protecting capital's freedoms Could you explain why censorial authorities were hesitant to curb controversial advertising in the name of public interest? Yeah, so
2: in a way, censorship was kind of how this project started, because like in my original vision for this whole project, I wanted to focus all of it on censorship, and during my Preliminary field work. I did like some research with organization that was in charge of pre-censoring all those advertising on television. So that was like around 2007, and as I was well doing my qualification exams and other things before doing my main field work, a major development happened in 2008. Korean Constitutional Court ruled that advertising was protected by constitutional guarantees for freedom of expression, which was really revolutionary development. Up to that point, advertising was considered marketing communication, so it was kind of regulated as commercial speech, and no one was particularly interested in adv- Like. Advertisers who were interested in advertising freedom, but for everyone else, it was kind of like, no, this is not something what we're talking about. It's not really relevant. So that radically changes in 2008 when advertising is recognized as creative expression, as kind of basically protected speech. So that creates this situation that any interference with advertising could be interpreted as interfering with someone's creative expression, with someone's freedom of speech. So, And after the constitutional court decision, many advertising structures have to be changed to accommodate that freedom of advertising, and specifically the censorship structure changes. So if before, for terrestrial television advertising, every single ad had to be pre-approved, after the constitutional court decision, that system was abolished and it was after the fact system. So after they were aired, they, could be moni- they were monitored and reviewed. So kind of the shift of decision-making changes. So I guess that kind of context explains why censors whose meetings I observed in 2009, 2010 were so conflicted. So on the one hand, So first of all, when I'm talking about censors, I'm primarily talking about a committee of public representatives at Korea Communication Standard Commission, which was like the main um, media watchdog at the time. So it had different committees for different media, and there was a committee for reviewing advertising to make sure that advertising that is shown in Korean, well, communication sphere in Korean television and Korean media is ethical, doesn't uh, break any regulations. So those people were public representatives. They were, many of them were professors. Some of them were NGO activists. And the idea of the committee that they were representing interests of different constituents who are interested in advertising so some people kind of spoke for advertisers some people for the public spoke for the public but the idea is the body has to protect public interest so i'm going kind to of labor in this point to make sure that they are not like government officials like kind of you know blocking someone freedom of expression rather they are delegates over the public, kind of representing the public, representing public interest. So they have this public mandate to, well, you know, review advertising and kind of interfere when they judge it somehow problematic. So that's like the institutional structure. But the um, kind of sociocultural context at that moment is that this decision that advertising is part of freedom of expression provisions it's very fresh. There is like a debate. Okay, how do we deal with provocative advertising now? If we cannot censor it, if we cannot ban it, should we just leave with that? But that's kind of says sometimes really provocative thing. So how, how do we kind of navigate this freedom of expression and advertising and ex- respect for freedom of expression? So basically censors like public representatives said that committee were caught in the middle of that. On the one hand, their role as a committee members was to ensure all advertising is ethical. On the other hand, as private individuals, they did not want to see themselves as like silencing someone. Like many of them spoke in the interviews how they basically hate this role, how they don't really want to be like blocking someone else's expression that as far as they are concerned, you know, many more things should be allowed that are actually allowed, but then they would say like, well, yeah, but there are children who might get their own ideas. There are old people who get upset about, I don't know, kissing and advertising. So kind of like this dance of like, I have to censor, but I'm censoring not because I think it's provocative, but because other people kind of make me do so because I have to think about this public interest issues. So yeah, that was kind of the situation with
1: I remember there was something you mentioned as well about like in a way they were sort of teaching advertisers how how to advertise without getting in trouble or like they were sort of helping to facilitate it by censoring in a way um in chapter four you write about advertising public such as audiences misidentification with advertisements What are these misidentifications and how do they shape how individuals interpret and engage with advertising and also if you could give some examples of misidentifications that would be great
2: yeah so the basic idea here is that most advertising is created to speak to a particular niche of consumers to sell them a particular product but when advertising appears on like a national medium, let's say a national TV channel, there is really no way to control who will see it. So like, even though the targeted addressee, let's say young people in their thirties who planning to buy an SUV, if it's the commercial is shown on national television, children will see it, elderly will see it, children's parents will see it. So it's kind of audience becomes much greater. And from the perspective of the advertiser, they don't really care about the rest of the audience. They care about their target audience, but they cannot really control that those people who they don't really want to talk to won't respond to the ad. So that's what I'm kind of trying to get with this concept of misidentification when people respond to advertising that doesn't really want to talk to them. And not only they notice it, not only they pay attention, but they kind of critically assess the message and in some ways react to that. And again, that happens all the time, I'm sure, when people comment on advertising. But... What was happening in Korea, you kind of have this general audience, which is quite vigilant in ensuring that advertising doesn't say something that is like potentially, I don't know, harmful to children or controversial or violating social norms. So in a way, it was interesting disconnect. On the one hand, you have like super cautious censors who try not to censor too much. But then you have like this general public who is very vigilantly watching. And if there are some things which they find objectionable, they file complaints with those sensors and other bodies and trying to kind of get some reaction to that. So the idea of misidentification is to kind of capture that unintended, but active part of the public, which is trying to shape what advertising can say, should say, and like how to stop advertising that doesn't say that.
1: Can you give an example? I know there was one where they used a character named Duli. Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, that was interesting.
2: Yeah, so it was like a fun (laughs) section to write. So... Dooley is a baby dinosaur character from 1980s cartoon, and most Korean children would know that. Actually, most Korean adults would know that because Dooley has been around for quite a while. And in the cartoon, it's kind of um, yeah. So he's like a dinosaur frozen in an iceberg, surfaces in Seoul, is saved by kind girl, ends up living with her family, and Dooley is a bit kind of rambunctious, troublemaking little dinosaur who gets in a conflict with this patriarchal father of the family. So that's kind of the setup. And again, that has been popular since the 80s. And in 2009, this Dooley character was used in a commercial for substitute driver service. So basically a service if someone had had been drinking and doesn't want to drive their own car home. They could call a a company and they will send someone to drive them in their car back to their house. So the idea is they don't kind of have to deal with the car next day. So substitute driving service and the company created an ad where Dooley, the baby dinosaur, appears as substitute driver. And it was kind of funny and played with the themes of the um, original cartoon. But at the same time, the service itself is a little bit dubious because it's like, you know, adults drinking too much. And yeah, so there was like a bit of a controversial reaction. And the points I'm making with this ad, it kind of came up in, well, it came up in many internet discussions, but also in interviews with some of my informants about their reactions to advertising. So originally it was brought to my attention by a young woman like a college student in her 20s who basically complained that this ad is probably inappropriate use of a cartoon character and the points i'm trying to make through analyzing her response is she was like a young woman in her 20s who was studying at a college she didn't drink she didn't have a driver's license so substitute driving was completely relevant to her And the advertiser with this commercial wasn't talking to her at all. But that was irrelevant for her because she saw Dooley, the character who she liked from childhood, and she was upset that somehow this cute baby dinosaur is used for this somewhat, well, I guess, useful service with somewhat dubious connotations. So she misidentified as addressee of that ad and responded with a criticism. And she wasn't alone. There was like a whole internet discussion of many people talking about how this is kind of misuse of a character. So again, like the advertisers are willing, wanting to target a particular niche but they get attention from much greater public who then say, okay, does this media text, well, belong with the public culture? Is it appropriate contribution? Is it, in this case, using the character in a way that is agreeable? In other cases, like, is it promoting social norms, which are acceptable? And so on and so forth.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I also thought it was really fun to read about the who that I'd heard of, but... So the next question I have for you is, can you describe the Onsoju boycotts you write about in Chapter 5 and the significance of Onsoju's campaigns?
2: So in some ways, that was kind of the hardest chapter to write because that whole situation is very counterintuitive outside of Korea, I think. So... Onsoju, Al took one campaign, because I had a couple English translations of their name, so I keep forgetting which is the official one. Korean or, Korean Consumer Servancy Organization. So I'll stick with Onsoju for now. So this is an organization that emerged as an internet forum in 2008 and kind of grew into actual like organization. So what's counterintuitive about this group is that, that, so generally the idea that advertisers are in full control of where they place their advertising is not really questioned. Advertisers are private companies. They spend their resources on their advertising. So it seems pretty logical that they could place the advertising wherever they want. However, with this organization, Onsoju, they thought that actually consumers should have a say in how companies spend their advertising because consumers, while well, buy commodities, also advertising supports media, and consumers depend on media for their political participation, for information, for well learning about the world. So, like if advertising supports media consumers should have some influence into what kind of media gets supported by advertising and people who are not really kind of following much media industries would assume like if a particular medium represents a relevant point of view, of course, it will be successful. People will just buy it and like advertising will follow, but actually it doesn't work that way. And often advertisers would prefer media that present ideas which are favorable to them. And in particular, critical media often struggle to attract advertisers, even if they have like big viewership or readership. So basically, On was kind of trying to interfere in that situation in Korea. And specifically, the situation in the print media, where you have five main national dailies, Three of them conservative and they are much bigger, much richer and get much, much more advertising. And two progressive, which do present critical opinions and are important voices in Korean mediascape, but at the same time, They are not, I mean, they get some advertising, but not as much as the conservative ones. And specifically, like many companies just would not advertise in those left-wing dailies for political reasons. So that's kind of like the um, media landscape in Korea. And one of the interesting things which I discovered during my research is that situation is kind of very widely known. So anyone minimally interested in the media in Korea would know that this is how it is. That's always been that way. That's just kind of how things are. And many people in Korea are quite critical of that, like many NGOs are quite critical of that. But at the same time, advertisers have control over the advertising, what can be done. And here where also Joe comes in. So they were trying to... Influence decisions of companies about where they place advertising by creating consumer boycotts. So the original boycott was the first one was in 2008. At the time, so in in summer there were unto- there were protests downtown Seoul about resumption of U.S. beef. And conservative media covered it very critically and kind of presented protesters as, you know, brainwashed, as not, you know as acting not out of their interest, but being manipulated by some leftist forces. So kind of like very negative coverage. So progressive newspapers took the side of the protesters and Soju emerged as a reaction to that, to basically kind of respond to those criticisms of the conservative newspapers. And the first boycott was when Also, Drew made a list of companies that advertise only in the conservative press and not in the progressive press, posted that list online with contact information and asked people to call those companies and tell them, okay, you have to advertise in the progressive media, too, and ideally stop advertising in the um, conservative media. And in that first round, that completely got out of control because people were calling those offices and they were yelling, screaming, swearing, threatening. So it was just kind of chaos happening for a while and some advertisers indeed pulled their ads from the conservative press because like, it was just too much to deal with. And that was going on for, I think, like about a month. And police investigation started, so they made the protests stop. And organizers of the protests were charged with obstruction of business, which is a major offense in Korea. So that's summer 2008. And... In summer 2009, there was a second round of those boycotts. Again, same idea: let's put pressure on companies to support left-wing media as well, to just create a more diverse public sphere in Korea, and let's use advertising as ever as leverage. However, like in the light of what happened with the first protest, with the first boycott the organizers did not do phone calls. They just made a list of companies that they list. No, they kind of boycotted different companies at different times. And when they're boycotting a company, they were basically making a list of products. They are not buying from that company, counting their cost and calculating it as damage. They have cost that way. So basically it was, pretty much blogging about not buying commodities of a particular company. But response again was quite severe and the organizers were prosecuted. So this, what, what I'm trying to make of this whole episode is this idea of trying to get consumers have a say in how companies spend their advertising budgets. And it was fascinating that it was, first of all, thinkable in Korea, because I don't think it's even imaginable in many other places. And that's actually one of the issues that comes up when I present on this work. Many people just kind of don't understand outside of Korea. They're trying to do what? Like, why? Like how is that even possible? But like in the case of Hounso Jews, I actually presented, I think, pretty convincing arguments saying like, OK, those companies, they depend on regular people to buy their products to work on their factories they kind of have to do something back for those people and the way they try to present what they should do is one thing they should do is support democratic media and how to support democratic media you give various diverse media a portion of your advertising so in that regard i thought that this particular incident was quite fascinating that First of all, they developed those arguments and second of all, they acted on them and had success for a short time. But yeah, eventually the whole boycott was kind of clamped down upon.
1: I admit, it did take me um, a moment to be like, what exactly is going on here when I was reading about the boycotts? um, But I also thought like, yeah, this is a unique way of of making an argument um, where it sort of seemed... Like the, the right of the advertiser had already seemed to be protected at that point. And they were arguing for the, like, I guess the rights of mediums to be advertised in and for customers to have their say in that as well. So I thought, wow, yes, that's, I mean, it's a really interesting, really fascinating um, how that came about. So my next question is after the rise of the Internet and smartphones in 2010, advertising entered a new epoch. What kind of changes have occurred since then and what changes do you see in Korea's advertising future?
2: So in a way, like the period when I did my main research, 2009, 2010, turned out to be kinda the end of era where advertising was dominated by traditional media. And at the time online media was present already But it wasn't quite obvious how much it will change advertising landscape just a few years later. So in a way, kind of like my research retrospectively got like that historical aspect to that because that like media landscape doesn't quite exist anymore. So basically what has been happening at that time and what kind of much more would happen now is, first of all, like a lot of advertising migrated online. And again, that was happening even in the 90s. But the game changer was a smartphone. And smartphones kind of came in Korea somewhat a little bit later than in other places. But after it did arrive, it just became the device that basically you cannot live in Korea without a smartphone. And advertisers had to adjust and actually were quite eager to adjust because with online media, one thing that's different, it's much less regulated because like with television advertising, with newspaper advertising, those were around for a while. So like all those rules about what can be said, when can it be said, how it should be said, all those things. With online media, it's especially early on, it was kind of open, plain field. So that in some ways resulted in more experimentation on the other hand, it's allowed for much racier advertising, which wouldn't be tolerated on any other media. So some of it kind of, well, became regulated now, but still like internet, it's much freer environment for advertising in that regard. So one big thing like advertising migrated online and traditional media kind of partially lost the importance. Another important thing is that Boundaries between advertising and non-advertising have been blurring. So what I mean, like if you have, let's say, a television program, you have content like programs and you have advertising breaks and advertising is advertising breaks with in contemporary media landscape. Basically, a lot of media content kind of incorporates some kind of marketing communication. So, you have like a lot of entertainment programs which are produced by like producers, like somehow I'm thinking like some, let's say, energy drinks, like Red Bull, for example. So, they have like TV, like not TV shows, but kind of media shows which show like particular. Uh, events, which not really advertising, but which are promoting their products. So kind of like this blurry genres, which are not quite marketing, not quite entertainment by a mixture of those. So from perspective of advertisers, it's actually very attractive to produce such kind of content rather than traditional advertising, because that's consumed voluntarily by people as entertained as entertainment. Also it's like if people consume it, they do consume it. Whereas with advertising, we're all kind of trying to you know escape it most of the time and not be subjected to that. So in some ways, like normal like normal regular media content is kind of becoming more marketing oriented. On the other hand, advertising to get attention has to become more entertaining because it's competing with all that media content. And in online environments, it's much easier to avoid advertising than, you know, let's say on traditional TV. So kind of like this blurring between different marketing, non-marketing communications and advertising, I think, is adapting to that. So I'm actually kind of curious if it will remain and for how long. I mean, I think it will, but definitely in kind of... Um, condensed like ways because a lot of promotions are moving into this kind of blurred content where marketing and entertainment are kind of meshed together
1: for some reason Um, when you were speaking it came to mind i remember that starbucks korea has their own show Right, sort of like a mini series. So that, thats exactly. something that came to mind. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Things like that. So is
2: it advertising? Well, not really. Is it entertainment? Kinda.
1: So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting question. So I'm also curious to see like how that will progress in the future. Um, I do have uh, an, one more question before um, we're finished for today. We take up a lot of your time, so thank you so much. Um, But the last question I have for you is, what's one thing you hope your readers will take away from this book?
2: Well, (laughs) I guess, like, one big point I was trying to make is that book. I was kind of trying to argue against this assumption that advertising is obvious, That's like in some ways, like we all know what advertising is like living in 21st century in some ways, like we all are experts on advertising, like we're surrounded by it all the time. So it's kind of very tempting to kind of see it as obvious and the way it works also kind of just accepted that just kind of how it is. So what I was trying to do is to just kind of challenge that idea a little bit to show that, well... In South Korea, advertising is kind of the same, but actually not quite. And what is different is that this idea of how it's a little bit closer to public culture. Like there are these ideas that it should be connected to public interest, and there are different institutions, individuals, like professions, which are quite dedicated to pushing this public interest ideal wherever possible. Of course, they don't succeed most of the time, but like this kind of idea that we cannot just say like advertisers can do whatever they want. There should be some like kind of pushback from people who consume advertising. So that idea is very prominent in Korea. So I was kind of trying to draw it out and foreground that, that we shouldn't be taking advertising for granted. And kind of related point, I guess that's the second point, um, is that I guess that's what I'm trying to say there that advertising as an institution is not fixed and universal. And Korea has like a bit of a modification with those concerns with public interest. But the other idea that it's not fixed, that those parameters and rules of advertising, they're being constantly negotiated. There is some kind of push from advertisers for greater freedom to advertise. There is like some pushes from NGOs, from citizen groups to enforce some kind of public interest rules so there was some kind of like movement there so in a way it's not fixed it's not settled once and for all so it is possible to kind of actually ask questions like what should be advertising doing in our societies like what should be the social contract of advertising so those questions i think are not raised enough and i am hoping that this example of korean advertising being actively contested could open that up and kind of provoke some conversations, like what kind of advertising do we want? Well, if you want any,
1: perhaps humanistic one. We do usually ask what projects you're currently working on or have worked on uh, recently, so. Well, I have
2: several new projects. I guess the most immediate one and the one most related to this book, I'm interested in opinion advertisements. So it is kind of advertisement, but advertising advertisements placed by citizens. Historically in Korea, they lived in newspapers, particularly in left-wing newspapers, which kind of saw this robust opinion advertising section as a way to promote participatory democracy. But in recent years, there are all these attempts to move those opinion advertisements to subway, like. If you've been to Korea in, oh, I don't know, last 10 years, you probably saw there like this huge ads for K-pop idols, like happy birthday, so-and-so. So that's kind of how those citizens' ads on the subway started. But in the recent years, there also attempts by different groups to kind of put advocacy ads on the subway. And that provokes all kind of controversies about, do we want controversial opinions on the subway? it is a public place, doesn't mean that it should be a place for citizens to express their opinions or should it be neutral not to offend anyone. So kind of debates about privatized public spaces and how citizens could be represented in it and through it. So that's kind of most related to this current research. And more generally, I'm kind of interested in materiality of media after the internet. actually did like a special issue with Ksenia Chezhova in Princeton on textual materiality in pre-modern and modern Korea. And for that special issue at the Journal of Korean Studies. Uh, and for that special issue, I wrote a paper about Tejabo, which are like this Korean wall posters, paper wall posters, which Korean students write and post on campuses wherever there is a controversy. And I just kind of found it fascinating that 21st century South Korea, everyone is on social media, everyone has a uh, cell phone, but when a protest happens, what do students do? They write a big poster. (laughs) So kind of trying to make sense of why would people kind of do things like that and kind of trying to theorize like why, like I'm basically connecting it to materiality of paper as an object, especially like materiality of big sheet of paper that takes space and is physically present in space. Yeah. So kind of exploring those topics in Korean context.
1: Those sound fascinating. Really. Um, I was writing them down. <laughs> like, oh, later. So great. Those sound really wonderful. Um, and I look forward to seeing other future projects that you'll have. And thank you again for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me and for great questions.
0: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.